This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. I don't know if that's a good place to find unity. Again, let's find our unity in Christ, in his holiness, in his perfection, not on, well, just this one part is sin, but a lot of people are actually giving in to other parts that are sin, and then we're okaying it by saying we need to be united. Welcome to the Elisa Childers Podcast. Have you been hearing about all the controversies surrounding Side A Christianity and Side B Christianity, and also the Revoice Conference? So if you're unfamiliar with all that's going on, we're going to bring you up to speed to discuss a biblical view of sexuality with a special guest today, Christopher Yuan, and what it might look like for a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction to faithfully follow Jesus. But before we get to that, I want to invite you to subscribe to the YouTube channel and click that bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video because we have some really great stuff coming up. Next time, next week, we're going to be talking with Rosaria Butterfield, continuing our little mini-series here on uh, biblical sexuality. We're going to be talking about identity and how Christians should understand themselves in light of Scripture, and maybe not so much in light of people like Freud or Darwin. So that's going to be a fascinating conversation. We've got a couple of book reviews coming up. I'm going to be reviewing The Making of Biblical Womanhood with Diana Williams from the Southern Evangelical Seminary, who's been on the podcast before, to talk about Christianity and feminism. We're also going to review Jesus and John Wayne with Ann Kennedy, also a former guest of the podcast who actually wrote a review of Jesus and John Wayne for the Christian Research Institute. So we're going to be bringing you our thoughts on those books coming up. So definitely subscribe if you're listening on audio platforms. If you leave a good review, and share these posts. It really helps get the word out to more people. A couple other things coming up on July 19th, we have the Another Gospel Participants Guide, six sessions on the search for truth in response to the claims of progressive Christianity coming out, along with a video curriculum. The pre-order for that is up on Amazon now already. Guys, the video for this is amazing. Uh, they rented out a beautiful coffee shop. Jay Werner Wallace joined 
joined me, and uh, John McRae from the What Do You Mean podcast joined me to discuss the claims of progressive Christianity, to give your small groups at church a six-week curriculum to walk through together as you read through the book, Another Gospel. So again, go to Amazon, and you can take a look at that pre-order link. It's called Another Gospel Participant's Guide, Six Sessions on the Search for Truth in Response to the Claims of Progressive Christianity. And now I want to get to my guest today, Christopher Yuan, graduated from Moody Bible Institute in 2005. He has a master's in biblical exegesis, doctor of ministry. He got uh, that in 2014. Uh, he taught the Bible at Moody Institute for 12 years, and his speaking ministry on faith and sexuality has reached five continents. He's written some really great books that I recommend to you. He's been on the podcast before to talk about them. One is called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope, and also Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, Sex, Desire, and Relationships Shaped by God's Grand Story. So Christopher, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so thrilled to have you back on the podcast video this time. You were on just when it was audio before. Yeah, good to be on with you, Elisa. It uh, just really appreciate you and your in your voice. Well, likewise. And for anyone who may not be familiar with you, just orient us a little bit with your story. How did you come to faith in Jesus? Yeah, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Wrestled with my sexuality from a young age. My parents aren't Christian. And uh, they raised me with very traditional Asian values. I came out of the closet in my early 20s, which I think is a little bit older than, uh, you know, kind of the average today, which is usually, you know, teens or, or even before that. I came out through that crisis. My mom came to faith and then my father did as well. I went the total opposite direction. I'm originally from Chicago. I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. I was there I was pursuing my doctorate in dentistry, came out. Um, my parents came to faith. I went in the opposite direction. It was then in, um, in Louisville while I was in graduate school that I was actually, I kind of was living in the world. I was doing what all my other friends were doing, which was have fun party. I started experimenting with drugs, also selling drugs. Eventually I was expelled from dental school just three months before I was receiving my doctorate. So I moved from Louisville to Atlanta kept doing what I knew how to do best. And I need to always pause here. Like I'm not at all. Sometimes people think I'm telling everyone's story. This is just my story. Not all gay men do drugs. Um, regrettably, it is part of my story. So in Atlanta, I was partying, doing drugs. I began not just selling drugs, but supplying drugs to dealers in over a dozen states. And this whole time, my parents had no clue that I was doing drugs, but they knew my biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And they tried to reach out in the love of Christ, and I wanted nothing to do with to do with it. They came to visit me one time and I told them to get out. Before my dad left, he gave me his Bible. And I told my dad, I don't want your Bible. Left in my kitchen counter anyway, walked out the door. I took my dad's Bible and I threw it in the trash. I just wanted nothing to do with God. And it was just obvious to my parents that I was just hopeless. But they committed not to focus upon hopelessness, but upon the promises of God. My mom prayed for every Monday for seven years and once fasted 39 days just for a miracle. And this miracle came with a bang on my door, opened up my door, on my doorstep, 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, two big German shepherd dogs. I found myself in jail. And a few days after that, I was walking around the cell block and I passed by this garbage can. But something on top of the trash caught my eye, I picked it up and it was a Gideon's New Testament took it back to my cell and I began reading it, not thinking, man, you know, this is the answer. I just thought 
I've got tons of time on my hands. Better pass it somehow. But as we know, it's the word of God that is like a double-edged sword began to convict me of my sins. And then I got worse news. I was called to the nurse's office and I got the news that I was HIV positive. I was in my cell a few days after that and I look up at the cold metal bunk above me and someone scribbled something and it read, if you're bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And God used those words penned to a prophet thousands of years ago to tell me that if God could have a plan for Israel in rebellion, in exile, he could have a plan for me. I don't know what that plan was going to take me. He gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next. And God was convicting me of my idols, obviously drugs, but he delivered me from that addiction. But, you know, Elisa, there was just one thing that I felt like I just couldn't let go of, my sexuality. Went to a chaplain, asked him his opinion, and he told me the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. He gave me a book, and I'm like, great. Now I can have my cake and eat it too. I had that book in one hand, the Bible in the other. And from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But it was God's indwelling Holy Spirit that convicted me that those assertions were a clear distortion of God and his word. I couldn't even finish that book, gave it back to the chaplain, and I turned to the Bible alone. Went through every verse, every chapter, looking for justification. I couldn't find any. So I was at this turning point, and I either abandoned God in his word, lives a gay man, pursuing monogamous same-sex relationship by allowing my attractions to dictate not only who I was, but also how I lived, or abandoned pursuing a monogamous same-sex relationship by freeing myself from my sexuality and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I followed Jesus. And the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, and I realized that my sexuality should not be the core of who I am. I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally. That's true. But don't we as sinners like to add to God's truth? I added, so therefore he doesn't want me to change. Similar to your friends who say, God loves me just the way I am, so leave me alone. Mm. But after reading the Bible, I learned that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. My identity should not be defined by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my desires. My identity is not gay. It's not ex-gay. It's not even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God mm. must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. You know, I thought that if I would become a Christian, I had to become heterosexual. What does that mean? I need to be sexually attracted to the opposite sex. And I even thought the more sexually attracted I were lots and lots of women, the more of a Christian man I would be. Yeah. But I realized that even if I had opposite sex attractions, I would still need to flee temptation and resist sin. So I realized that the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. That's not the goal. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of every sin is holiness. I don't need to focus upon whether I'm struggling or tempted. I just need to focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity because change is not the absence of temptations, but change is a spirit-wrought ability to be holy even in the midst of temptations. So I began to live this life of surrender and obedience in prison, and God called me to ministry in prison. 
I applied to Bible college in prison, got accepted, and then went on to get my master's and then later doctorate. And then I had the really cool privilege of co-authoring a book with my mom, Out of a Far Country, and then my newest book, Holy Sexuality of the Gospel as well. And I've read both, and they are tremendous, just mm, uh, wonderful books that I highly recommend to everybody. I actually recommend Out of a Far Country to people all the time. I have a lot of parents come up to me in conferences, mm. and they're concerned about their children. And it may not even be in the area of sexuality. It just might be right. my, my adult child is deconstructing. They don't believe in Christianity anymore. They don't believe in the core tenets of the gospel anymore. And I just feel mm. helpless. I don't know what to do. And I say, read Out of a Far Country because you're going to watch the story of a praying mother who loved her son and, you know, mm. prayed for him and fasted for him. And so I've, I've, I think that book has even a greater application than to mm. just your immediate story, because I do recommend it Amen. in those situations all the time. And, and, you know, I often remind people um, that my testimony is not really about a man who used to identify as gay and now no longer does, but this is my testimony. I once was lost and now I'm found. I once was blind, and now I see. I once did not believe, and now I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's my testimony. And so you're right. I I, I like to think of our testimony just not, yes, it, it touches specifically on sexuality, but it's an awesome God who does the impossible, and he saves sinners. Amen. Well, this is a good start, gives us a good foundation to get into our discussion today because I started to see a lot of stuff online, and I saw side A Christianity, side B Christianity, and then some controversy around this conference called Revoice. And honestly, Christopher, I didn't really know that much about all of these different terms and how that all played together. And then recently I saw a discussion that you and Rosaria Butterfield did with uh, Beckett Cook, and uh, it really clarified things for me. And I thought, I really want to bring this discussion to my audience because I want them to understand what's going on and why it really matters what we think about these things, even as Christians. And so would you just start us off by helping us to understand what those terms mean? What is side A Christianity versus yeah. side B Christianity? Yeah, great question, Elisa. Um, so I'm just going to do a little bit of just recent history lesson just to kind of bring us to, to where we came up with these terms, side A, side B. Some people like, I never heard that before. Maybe you've heard the term just a gay Christian or a gay celibate Christian kind of dis dis distinguish. Uh, so doing some history, if we go about 10 years ago, uh, there used to be an organization, um, or a little bit less than that, called Exodus. It was kind of the main Christian organization that addressed this issue of same-sex attractions, but they used more of a developmental framework that this is because of things in your childhood. And so you need to kind of just mature into heterosexuality or pursue, as Dr. Nicolosi says, your heterosexual potential. Well, that's fraught with problems, um, not so much the way that the world is trying to make it illegal. That's incorrect and I, and that's wrong, but that's more from a, I don't want to be like communist China. I don't want to be, you know, uh, you know, uh, run by a government that's telling us everything, what we can or cannot do, because that's, you know, that's hugely problematic. Uh, but the problem that is that it's not biblical in that, heterosexuality is not the correct goal. It's too broad. Heter I'm, my issue is not he that heterosexuality is fully wrong. It's just not fully right. Because marriage is one form of heterosexual relationship, but not representative of all the other ones, because all the other ones are sinful. So the problem with that is it was also kind of 
um, inadvertently sometimes, either directly or indirectly, promising that if you just go through these steps, if you go through the groups, if you go through the one-on-one -on -one, uh, psychotherapy, uh, you can be set free from uh, same-sex attractions and actually then have opposite sex attractions. So essentially it was saying, um, you don't need Jesus. You don't mm. need the gospel. What you need is you need a support group and you need a counselor to, to help you with your sin. That's the biggest problem. It's understanding, it's having the correct diagnosis. The problem is not a Freudian um, developmental theory category. That, you know, this is not something in your childhood. That's totally Freud. Um, but the correct diagnosis is this is sin. Mm. And if sin is a problem, then we know what is the correct treatment. It's Christ and the correct context for sanctification and, uh, and salvation is actually the body of Christ. So the Christian organization didn't um, focus on that and it was pulling people outside of the church and pulling away pe from people from Christ as the answer and more into support groups and um, psychotherapy as the answer. So then a reaction to this was a group called the Gay Christian Network, founded by Justin Lee, Wes Hill, Ron Belgao. Now, they didn't agree on everything because Justin Lee believed that God blesses same-sex marriage. Wesley Hill and, Just and Ron Belgao, they believe that no, same-sex marriage is wrong, it's sin, uh, but, uh, or, or the same-sex sex is sin, uh, but, it, but, but I just am gay because I tried Exodus and I can never change, so this is just who I am. So where they both agree, so this is, you know, people talk about unity. Well, how far are we going to take with unity? Mm. Because side, when you talk about side A, side, when we talk about side B, gay Christians, and, and they're talking about, Elisa, you and me, we need to be like united around these people that are side B because they're trying so hard to say no to their sin. And so we need to unite with them. Well, the problem is side B actually finds unity with side A. I mean, that's, that's their history. Um, so these people that are living in, in, in very blatant sin and actually celebrating sin and telling people that same-sex marriage is okay, and I, would, I really question personally whether they are Christian or not because the Holy Spirit is supposed to do his job to convict people of sin, and mm -hmm. they're not convicting them of sin. So that's why in, in, in any situation with any other person, if a person is in continuous unrepentant sin and they say they're Christian, I don't see the fruit of repentance, the good fruit of repentance. And so that's when I say, I, I, do, I really hope that they will be saved in the future and put their faith in Christ. But right now, if they're in unrepentant sin, then I, I, there is dissonance and the Bible tells us how to treat these people. Um, so then they created this organization, Gay Christian Network, but they were, they were united around the fact that they were both gay they can't change, and they were Christian. That's how they were united around. But they disagreed on whether same-sex sex was sinful or not. And so then they said, okay, well, we're both gay Christians, but then now you have side A gay Christians, and then you have side B, side B gay Christians. Side A believe that God blesses same-sex marriage, um, but then side B gay Christians say the sex is wrong, um, and then we just have to grit and bear it and be celibate for the rest of my life. So lifelong celibacy, they call. Mm. So the confusion sometimes is, and I've been asked this many times, is you're side B, right? No, I'm not side B because side B is actually, you know, it's, it's oftentimes called, you know, well, well, we hold to the, you know, traditional view of sexuality. I argue we don't. 
um, because the biblical view of sexuality is that sex is reserved for marriage. And that means not only the sex, but the desires and everything in between. Because Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if a man looks lustfully after a woman, then he's committed in his heart. He's, he's already committed adultery. So that means that the act, if the act is wrong, then the desire for that act is wrong and everything in between. So it's not just the, the act of sex that's wrong, uh, but it's also uh, the desires that I have. And also not to say that we're tempted. Now, tempted, that's a whole nother issue mm -hmm. because temptation in and of itself is not actual sin, but it can quickly lead to sin. But anyway, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but th this is kind of the history. The side A, side B is, is a response. It's, a, it's reactionary to the past organization called Exodus. And these people uh, who were united around this that said, I am gay. I can't change. This is who I am. But um, I can either, like side A, be, pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship or side B say, I cannot pursue a monogamous same-sex relationship, but I just am gay and this is who I am. So it sounds like both side A and side B are embracing the identity of LGBTQ as a, as a real identity about who they are. Is that, is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And, and there's a lot of discussion as, as, as we spoke before about, you know, the use of the term identity. Is that an appropriate term? Is it, um, is it something that, that is in the world, et cetera? And yes, I mean, we're living in a world, you know, it's that, that fine line of being in the world, but not of the world. And so we need to use language, which is also mm. part of this world. And identity is, it is a little bit nebulous concept, but I think it's important for us to address, especially when we're talking about sexual identity and gender identity. So this is not at all a word that we're making up or that Christians are trying to kind of demonize or, or create some type of false concept. This really is something of the world um, where sexuality is not anymore. The world does the world, the world does not anymore view sexuality as what you feel and what you do, the worldview sexuality as who you are. Mm -hmm. So to identify, you know, to define identity, I'm talking about uh, what is our essence? What is the core of our being? Uh, what is, you know, uh, what is personhood? And if just real simply, how do we answer the question, who am I? Because if sexuality really was what I felt, well, I would say, well, I have these desires. Um, I desire this. I feel this. I'm attracted to this. Um, but sexuality, even side B, they they will usually use the terminology. This is who I mm -hmm. am. And Rosario Butterfield says it so well. She says this shift from what, meaning what I feel, what I do, to who has created this radically distorted view of personhood. Yeah. Okay. That's really clarifying and helpful because I remember when I first started seeing this whole idea of side B popping up, you know, I took a cursory look at it and I was like, well, it's just good. I mean, I, I don't like that they're using the qualifier in front of Christian. I don't really like any qualifier in front of Christian, but you know, they're, they're trying to live faithfully. And, and so it seemed like it was kind of okay in the beginning, mm -hmm. but I'm realizing I learned more about it and we're going to get into some of these details. Um, this is why people like you and Rosaria are warning about this and we're going to get into that. But let's talk first about the Revoice Conference. So what is the conference? Yeah. What's the controversy surrounding it? And what you know, what's involved with Revoice as it would relate with side A and side B? 
Yeah. So let me do a little bit more history and bring us up to speed. So I saw there was a reaction to Exodus created this uh, this network and it was a conference and, and like an online network of people that were they were all gay, but they just agreed to disagree. You know, again, this whole unity thing, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm sometimes it's usually the people that are screaming unity that are moving away from the gospel. Um, yes, we are to be united, but the emphasis is not united me and you, Elisa. The emphasis is that we're united to Christ uh, alone. And so when we emphasize too much, we need to just be unity, uh, you know, that's that's focusing more on each other. And I'm sorry, but Elisa, don't follow me because I can lead you astray. <laughs> I'm yeah. a sinner and we both need to follow Jesus, follow Christ, follow God, his word. Uh, so... I, so what happened with the Gay Christian Network, they were actually having meetings and conferences. Well, I mean, think about it. If, if my biggest struggle was alcohol and I was just hanging out with people that were just drinking all the time, that's not healthy. Um, with this conference was maybe 80% of the side A and maybe 20% side B. I mean, I, I, that's maybe a little guess because I've never been to these conferences, but I definitely know that the, the side B was a smaller minority. So these people that were side B were like, we're going to these conferences and these people, you know, what they're doing is they're coming together and they're looking for a lifelong uh, uh, life partner, that same sex. And that's not healthy for me. And I want to be like, well, yeah. And um, so they then kind of created their own subgroup and they sort of pulled away from this gay Christian network um, and they created a group called Spiritual Friendship. Spiritual friendship for years has been going on. And West Hill, Ron Belgau, they're the main uh, creators of this. Um, I know both of them. Really great, um, winsome, uh, nice, compassionate. I mean, both of them are so gentle. If you ever knew them, they're like, I don't think they would ever hurt a flea. Just really great. And and Wes is a a, a writer and um, a theologian, uh, really bright. Uh, Went to Durham to get his PhD. I just would differ. And, and I think that's okay. It doesn't mean that I don't think they're my friend. I don't think that, you know, that they're the wicked, hateful people. I just think that they don't get this right. And what's the big deal? Um, well, let, let, let me finish a little bit. So spiritual <laughs> friendship is from this concept uh, that's from about 11th century Cistercian monk that um, believe, I mean, when you're a monk, you're living by yourself, you know, you're not with people. And so he believed that monks needed to actually form what the, he called in Latin, spiritual friendship. Um, so that I think has taken a little bit out of, out of context. We're no longer monks um, that are hermits and isolated from the world. We are in the world. And, um, and, and essentially a, a spiritual friendship is a lifelong covenanted relationship between two people of the same sex. Sounds innocuous, right? Mm. But if you think about it, it's essentially marriage without the sex. It's, it's same-sex marriage without the sex. It's a it's a relationship between two people that they they make. And I actually know of people who have made these lifelong covenants. It's 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 a ceremony um, mm. of of two men or two women, and they covenant together. They live together. They own property together. It's from every uh, any other situation, it's a same-sex marriage. They just don't have the sex. Seems innocuous again, right? Because sex, same-sex sex is sin. I'm glad that, that we can at least agree to that, that that's a sin. But then to say that that's the biblical view of sexuality is actually not correct. It seems impossible too, doesn't it? Seem a bit well, impossible? If we're going to just be pragmatic and anecdotal, I, I think it would be miserable. I mean, I couldn't imagine if there was a man that I loved and I was living with him and we had every, and I, I loved him, 
romantically loved him, but I couldn't touch him or if that would be miserable, that would just be so hard. Um, so I just don't see how that would be actually yeah. good or fun or anything like that. Um, so I, I think that's the big distinction. You know, I, I say in my testimony that, that the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. And I've had people uh, side B that have really pushed back very hard. Uh, you know, Ron Belga on West Hill, they said, I wish you wouldn't say that. And the reason is because they do not believe that every aspect of their same sex attractions or their sexuality related to same sex uh, must be mortified. That is where we disagree. Um, every aspect that I have uh, that is sexual and romantic, any desire behavior is something that I need to mortify, including my temptation. I need to mortify that. I need to resist that. And uh, this is where side B, we would disagree. disagree. And as a matter of fact, Wes, Wes Hill would even say that there are aspects of, he would say, being gay. I think that just that phrase is wrought with so many problems. Uh, but he would say being gay is good and sanctifiable. Um, and that is that really is the big difference uh, where it's taking, you know, same-sex romantic relationships or a.k.a. known as spiritual friendships Um are, are actually good. And we need to celebrate that, and encourage that. I can't do that because I can never promote sin. I can mm -hmm. never encourage a sinful relationship. Um, so I think that's really the key. You know, is it people, you know, aren't we just arguing over terminology? It's not over terminology. Are we actually pointing people to sin? Uh, though people might say that the, the action is wrong, but then everything else is okay. That I don't know any sin where that is the issue. Where just don't act on it. But mm -hmm. you can you can say, you know, if I'm married, you know, just don't act on it. But it's okay for me to romanticize about my best friend's wife. Mm. It's okay right. to it's okay for me to have like this lifelong covenanted. Um, Real, uh, friendship with my with my best friend's wife like like we'll have a, even a ceremony I, I know people who even and this is on facebook well they'll actually have friend anniversaries or whatever they call it you know so they'll actually have an anniversary um and, and sometimes it's maybe not between two men of the, who are same-sex attracted but it's one is who is same-sex and might be opposite sex attracted and he's married and i just i'm i'm i don't know what that wife is thinking it's oh. not it's not appropriate. It's not um, uh, God honoring. It's not honoring of uh, a biblical marriage. It's foreign to scripture. It is foreign to scripture. And yeah. friendship is never meant to replace marriage. Um, so I think a lot of kind of side B um, is relying not on scripture, but on uh, Roman Catholic church history. For example, spiritual friendship you will not find that anywhere in scripture. You'll mm. find that in church history. Um, even the term celibacy, you will not find it anywhere in scripture. It's a Latin word. It's from a Latin root. And even so interesting, you won't even find the, the word uh, celibatus, uh, the Latin root of ce uh, celibacy in the Latin Vulgate. We only find it in medieval Roman Catholic church history, which as we know, you know, sola scriptura, not based on our traditions. 
Um, so, I, you know, I think it's helping th- to think things through biblically. So spiritual friendship, that's how that formed. But they were just an online group um, and kind of gr- getting more and more momentum. And then about three or four years ago, uh, Revoice, they, they're like, you know what? We need to actually have a conference. Like, let's meet together and we need to have community and stuff. I mean, community is great, I think. Although I can add, I'm not convinced that what I need most are to get people together who are all struggling with the same sin and pull us together. I mm. just don't find where that is really helpful, uh, that that's where we're finding our main community. And yet that's what we're finding in many big cities that, you know, side B gay Christians, they're all, all rooming together. They're forming these communes together. And yet, you know, not that all fail, but I know many instances where that does because what we need most is not more spiritual friendships what we need more of is spiritual family we need more of the body of christ we need more of christ and the body of christ so about three or four years ago nate collins um was my classmate at moody i i did not know anything about his story before he knew about mine uh he experienced the same such attractions uh, went through a period where he was very much um, involved with Exodus and he was, you know, kind of a big advocate for reparative therapy. And w- when I reconnected with him, it was right around the time that Exodus closed. And I remember having some discussions with him about about why reparative therapy is not actually the correct goal. And he was we were debating back and forth and he he still believed that um, reparative therapy and counseling and stuff like that was really helpful for him. But then he did like this huge turn when Exodus closed. And then he went from kind of the ex-gay framework to more of a, uh, a, a side B, a gay celibate framework, where now he is now very comfortable with saying he's a gay Christian. Uh, he would even say he, he, he is in a mixed orientation marriage. We can talk about that more. It's, wow. Again, why would you be listing not only, you know, a, a sin struggle to your, you know, who you are in Christ, but why would you link that to your marriage? Like, mm. uh, you know, I know many men, Christian men who struggle with porn. Why would you say, you know, I, I'm a porn addict, you know, yeah, you porn know, addicted in, in what, inter- what marriage, marriage yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. yeah. So um, it's, that's the thing. It's not naming what it really is, that it's, a, it's something related to our sin nature, but revoice um, was kind of taking spiritual friendship and, and I think that spiritual friendship, the tone was actually uh, more tempered um, and and kind of uh, some of the articles a lot I didn't agree with, but it, it still was um, kind of dealing with the things and, and holding to kind of more uh, more in line with kind of Bible-believing Christianity. Uh, but Revoice taught took this kind of more sharper turn and not only was using terminology like LGBTQ plus Christians, queer Christians, you know, queer framework, queer theology, uh, but then also using a more uh, seeing everything through the lens of oppressor and victim. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what you hear in many of their talks is We've been marginalized. We've been, you know, suppressed and oppressed, and the churches have been kicking us out, and they have been not. But you know, I've been all these stories. You know, I've been, you know, uh, my, my elder board had to meet with me, and all about, you know, all these things. You know, uh, the church has treated me so bad, and and uh, now I find community, you know, here, and we're the victims, and so that's a little, you know, it's it's kind of the the way that the world is now viewing everything through the lens of oppression course we should deal with the issue of oppression but then it lacks this the most important thing that sets christianity apart is that there is hope even in the midst of difficulties even in the midst of oppression 
and that we are not victims, but we are in Christ victors. So Revoice is kind of this conference that, that elevates all these ideas and concepts. That's again, you know, people will say, well, these are people that are trying so hard, um, you know, to, to live faithfully to God. But what they don't realize is that um, although they might not call the act of same-sex sex sin, but they're not calling all the other things sin, nor do they call it things that we need to be mortified. There are things that need to be celebrated, they say. So that's the the distinction. It really is over what is not just the act of sin, but what are sinful desires and and what are sinful relationships. Okay. There's so many different directions I want to go right now, but I I want to ask you a clarifying question just so that nobody misunderstands you. When you say celibacy isn't found in the Bible, uh, what are you saying? What what do you recommend we think in terms rather than using that category? How do you propose we think about sexual purity in that? Sense? Yeah, Elisa, this is so funny because you know I've been kind of speaking for the past twenty years, um, and even before that, before I was a, a Christian, um, there was a lot of terms that uh, maybe I used then that I wouldn't that people in the gay community wouldn't use now. There were a lot of terms that are used now that I definitely, they weren't even around back then. Uh, so, but even in my time as a Christian, I've, I've also realized I, I need to be careful. I, I'm, I'm very, I want to always be careful with my words. Words matter. Words mm-hmm. have meaning. And I would say maybe 20 years ago or even 10 or 15 years ago, celibacy and chastity were kind of like, they were synonymous. Um, uh, but more and more we're hearing about, you know, kind of just the Roman Catholic priesthood and all the, you know, turmoil around that with the abuse and how celibacy is often linked with the priesthood. And so I'm almost like I, I'd like to sort of avoid that that baggage. But um, the discussion about celibacy, not just as the condition of being unmarried, the state of being unmarried, but celibacy has become this lifelong chosen vocation, this calling. And that, that concept of, um, because yes, I know just because a word isn't found in the Bible doesn't mean that we shouldn't use it. Trinity isn't found right. in the Bible. The word Bible isn't you know, found in the Bible. The concept is, so is the concept of celibacy a lifelong chosen vocation found in scripture? I wrote my book and I did a whole study on celibacy and I found out that it is not found in scripture. Sometimes people will point to 1 Corinthians 7 about this calling in the middle of the, of the chapter. But if you look closely, what Paul is talking about there is, you know, when he says, what were you called uh, when you were slave or whatever free? You know, what were you called? Uh, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. What were you when you were called? And um, so what Paul is talking about is like what? What state were you, you know, when you were called? That calling is the call of salvation. So in other words, if you were a slave when you were called to salvation, um, then that's okay. I mean, don't don't seek, you know, you don't have to try so hard. You know, same thing, you know, if you were not circumcised, don't don't change that. And, and And what Paul's point is, our call of salvation makes almost everything secondary, almost everything nearly insignificant. However, then he gives a little caveat. Now, if you are, if you're, you know, if you have the opportunity to to be free, then go for it. But don't make it like you're, you're in a sense kind of idle. I'm, I'm adding that. But don't make it so you're so obsessed with this. That's what that's calling about, talking about there. But other than that, there really isn't. I mean, you have the, 
the passage, you know, that's talking about the eunuch, you know, you're born eunuch, etc. I mean, that's a little bit en enigmatic, but even there, there's nothing about a calling, uh, especially, you know, a lifelong. I mean, it's what I think Jesus is talking about there is that actually, you know, singleness, some people, you know, it's chosen or some sometimes it's not chosen that you're single and that's okay. So I think, Unfortunately, today around the issue of sexuality, uh, the conversation around celibacy as this lifelong chosen vocation has completely overshadowed mm. the more important conversation about just being single. Because it uh, almost seems like it, of singleness. It, it's almost like limiting God in a sense that if you come out of, let's say, a gay lifestyle and then you say, I'm going to be this, I'm going to be celibate lifelong, then that's almost inadvertently accepting that identity of gay rather than saying, look, I'm going to just, I'm going to be open to what the Lord does in my heart and uh, I'm going to be open to what he calls me to, whether Amen. that's marriage or, it, would you agree that? that oh, 100%. Yeah. So, you know, because I think people say, well, I've tried to change. And I can't change. Well, how do you know what tomorrow may bring? I mean, mm -hmm. just because you've in the past 20 years, even there was no change in that, that does not mean then, then you, uh, you know, that God couldn't do something. Now, I, I understand where people are reacting to the past where it was, you know, the past uh, kind of the ex-gay framework that to, to, to show evidence of healing and deliverance, uh, you get married. And you have children. And uh, that was then kind of we held you up as the model of healing and change. So I get how that is wrong. So we can say this is not normative, but it's possible. You, you know, right. like if, if someone had cancer, um, do we pray for healing? Of course we do. Does that mean that God's going to guarantee it? No. But is it possible? Yes. In the same way for myself, I'm 52 years old. Um, I'm single. I don't say that I'm celibate because I don't know what tomorrow may bring. I'm not making a lifelong vow of, of celibacy simply because, you know, well, my, my whole past, I've never had any change or whatever, I mean, which is, I, I, would, I would not say that's true. There has been change. Uh, but the ultimate thing that we need to focus on is I still have a sin nature. You know, people ask, do you still have same-sex attractions? I step back and I say, well, are, are Christians, are they devoid of, of temptation when, they're, when they become to come to, come to Christ? Mm. And the answer is, all Christians will be tempted on this side of glory. So though I may be tempted, you know, with this particular uh, nature, you know, matter of my sin nature, I'm tempted with actually other sins as well that I need to daily say no to. Uh, so, but... So this reality of, of celibacy, I think it's just a healthier way to think about it. It's just the state of singleness. Mm -hmm. The whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul uses the Greek word agamas. Gamas means married. And when you put an A in front of a Greek word, it's kind of like negating it. So it's unmarried. So it's simply just the state of not being married. And, and that's what I could, I, I'm just, I'm not married yet, but I'm open. Um, if the Lord, if it is God's will... I'm open to him providing for me a godly wife. Um, and uh, so, you know, my book lays out what God calls for all of humanity, and I call it holy sexuality, chastity and singleness, or faithfulness in marriage. Uh, and this, you know, is something that all of us need to pursue that we, that, that God lays out for us. And it's, uh, and I call it two paths that, 
uh, it's not by choice. Like, for example, singleness, it's not a choice. I mean, no one was born married, so we're all born single. That's just the way we are. Even if we read uh, what Jesus writes in Matthew 22, we will all be single in eternity. There's no marriage in heaven. Um, and even marriage, I think it's much healthier to think about marriage not as a choice. It's too much pressure. You know, our young adults, am I making the right choice? That's a lot of pressure on someone's shoulders. I liked it, and I encouraged my students when I was teaching at Moody Bridal Institute to not think about marriage as a choice, but think about it as God's will. Is this God's will? Because when we think about it as God's will, that means I need to seek godly counsel. I need to talk to my pastors. I need to talk to my parents. I need to talk to my accountability partners, my mentors, and seek the will of God. Not seek out what does my heart want, not seek out what my desires want, because my heart can lead me astray. And I want to seek the will of God. And I think that's just a healthier way to, to view this, as opposed to kind of making this preordained kind of decision that I just can never get married, and I just have to just be celibate for the rest of my life. Man, you are just a wealth of of great thoughts. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's let's let me ask you this about Revoice. I, I looked at their website today, and it says this: Revoice exists to support and encourage Christians who are sexual minorities, so they can flourish in historic Christian traditions. Now, the thing that jumped out at me when I read that was the phrase sexual minorities. That's um, an implicit sort of embrace of this idea of your sexuality being that identity category we were talking about earlier that, that is goes along with side B. So even considering that to be an identifier that would put you in the minority oppressed versus oppressor class like you were just talking about. But there's also this interesting phrase here where they talk about we want those sexual minorities to flourish in historic Christian traditions. So can you comment on maybe a little bit on both of those things? Yeah. Um, am I right to, to see that implication there in that phrase? And then what do they mean by historic Christian traditions? Yeah. So sexual minority is, um, is a phrase that has been used in social science um, uh, discipline and also psychology, but it is, and it's a secular framework. Um, and, you know, is that something that, that Christians that we should use? So I, I think we need to have these discussions of, of showing how, you know, issues, I mean, we're right now in the conversations about race and, um, and also, you know, the difference between male and female and sexism and all that, you know, that's what the world is dealing with. And, and as the church, we need to address that as well, biblically. So the problem with using the terminology sexual uh, minority is that you're exactly right. It makes uh, sexuality an issue that's, that seems to be on par with other essential characteristics like race and like sex, male or female. Uh, but it's not on par because whereas my race is truly an ontological category, it's a, it's a category of essence, it is part of my personhood, same with being male, um, my sexuality is not. And so let's just, uh, let's, Let's go to scripture where I mentioned that passage about um, in Matthew 22, where Jesus says that there will be no marriage in heaven. If we follow the logic, uh, if there's no marriage in heaven, that we're all going to be single in eternity, uh, but we will be corporately wed to the Lamb of God. If there's no marriage in heaven and we know if sex is only reserved for marriage, that means there will be no sex in heaven. If there's no sex in heaven, follow the logic, 
then that also means that would mean there's no sexual desires in heaven. And if there's no sexual desires in heaven, that actually also means sexual or romantic desires in heaven. Then that also means that sexuality is only a here and now reality, just as marriage between a man and a woman is only an institution for here and now, not for eternity. Sexuality is as well. And the reason is because sexuality and marriage will be fulfilled in eternity. Uh, marriage is going to be fulfilled because it's the ultimate reality. What, what marriage is today between a man and a woman, what they point to, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, is the mystery, the mystery of Christ and the church. Um, and that's going to be fulfilled. I love what Piper says that um, if there's uh, the re reason why there's no marriage in heaven, he says, is because, um, uh, you know, marriage is just a shadow of the ultimate reality. And when the ultimate reality comes to fruition in the eschaton, that means, um, you know, that that uh, that Christ and the church, Revelation 19, that they are wed, you know, during the great supper of the lamb, then there's no more need for the shadow. And I love that that picture. You know, you don't need the shadow anymore. You don't need the thing that's pointing to the reality when the reality comes to fruition. So um, sexual minority is problematic because, again, it, it makes it seem like that sexuality is an ontological reality. And, and, and many of the, you know, my side B friends will often say, well, you know, well, I'm, you know, when I say side B, I'm not using it ontologically. They're using it phenomenologically. Which... I don't know how many people actually know what phenomenology means. Why I mean, don't you I've... tell us? <laughs> <laughs> so Help it's... us, Christopher. What oh, my mean? goodness. Uh, well, actually, even in my tell master's us what program, both of those get... things. Tell us ontological yes. okay. and ontological. phenomenological. Because I always tell Ont people, we define, the, we define the big words on this podcast so people don't Good. feel lost. Good, yes. So ontology is basically um, what is our essence, what is um, who we are. And, and we're, not trying, we're not being Gnostic here and trying to split kind of, well, we're just mind or spirit. It's onto like our whole essence, our whole being and our whole meaning body and soul. So, you know, we're not trying to play this Gnostic game that identity is only just kind of a, a spiritual reality. But uh, ontological means what is our essence, like the core of our being. That's uh, ontology. So in other words, when you think of ontology, think of being. Phenomenological, and the reason why I, I sometimes laugh when people uh, you know, try to say, well, I'm using this word phenomenologically. Um, before I was in my doctoral program, I had no clue what phenomenology was. And try to say that fast 10 times. Phenomenology, essentially, I mean, I think what they're trying to mean, even though this isn't exactly what it means, they're trying to say, well, I just use it like to refer to my experience. This is what I feel or what I do. That's nice, but you can't redefine words. That's not what phenomenology means. Phenomenology means that uh, experience, it, it's a study that uses the framework that our experience, that you can't really know truth except through your experience. Mm -hmm. That's phenomenology. And if they're using actually the, the, the right definition, that's something we need to reject. I mean, that's rooted in postmodernism and that, that there is no truth, that actually truth can only be gained through our experience. But that's actually how oftentimes it is practically uh, spoken and given, uh, you know, at Revoice. You know, the people who, who have this experience are given authority where others don't. And if you don't, then you have to be apologetic. I mean, you know, my good friend, you know, Preston Sprinkle, I, I've, I think he's a really, he's a super gifted speaker. I just don't agree on many important aspects. 
he often begins his talk by saying, uh, very apologetically saying, I'm a straight white cisgender male. And that shouldn't matter. Elisa, you don't have same-sex attractions, but that does not mean you cannot speak God's truth on this topic. Yeah. Uh, just because you happen to be Caucasian does not give you any less authority to speak God's truth. Um, just because I'm Chinese doesn't give me more authority. Just because I have this experience doesn't give me more authority. I, it could give me some, some different insights, but even my insights need to be submissive to the word of God. Uh, you know, oftentimes when I speak at churches and conferences, I say this, please don't believe something simply because I said it. Don't believe anything just because some person with a bunch of, you know, letters after their name said it, or they seem really authoritative or they wrote a bunch of books. Do not believe that simply because someone says it. Listen, take notes, but then go home and open up this book, The Word of God. That is our only authority. And I submit myself fully to the Word of God because we have God has revealed himself through his word. And that's what we need to submit to, not according to what we feel and what we think. So, um, so, you know, when people say, well, you know, I use this only experientially, but when it's being used practically, like just simply using the word sexual minority, that places you in a, in a category of personhood. Like you're, you're, we're categorizing human beings now according to our desires. So we categorize people according to their sex, male or female. We categorize people according to their skin color, you know, their race. And now we're categorizing people according to their desires. Is that what God intended? That, that we would be um, put into different boxes according to our sexual desire or any desire? And I would argue and I would say no. So uh, sexual minority is problematic in that um, it, it, it makes sexuality more of an ontological reality, and it almost puts it on par with other true uh, issues that could be leading to morality, whether it's race or whether it is um, being sex, male or, you know, male or female. And, um, but it also kind of is pointing to this framework of, like you said, Elisa, the the oppressor and the victim. So these are essentially all the people that are oppressed because they're minorities and now they have authority and they need to listen to everyone else and, and everyone else, because you don't have this victimhood status. Um, you need to listen. Um, so that's, you know, I, and I'll be honest um, in my doctoral research, when I began in 2009, I, I began to use that phrase. And then I realized that is wrought with errors. And so I had to change my research um, and even though it was in still my, um, my survey that I sent out, uh, but in my, what I printed out or in my print of my dissertation, um, I changed the, the, the terminology and the vocabulary on that. But then this issue of, uh, historic Christian traditions, um, and, and I'm, and I'm glad that they're naming what they're following. You know, it's the traditions that they're following because, um, Spiritual, spiritual friendship, uh, celibacy, not rooted in scripture, but it's only rooted in traditions, which we should actually take our traditions and always take our traditions and submit them to the word of God. And, uh, but I would argue they don't hold to um, biblical, Christian, biblical sexuality. And why is that? Because they're just limiting that the only thing that's wrong is the act. The same sex, sex 
is is wrong. But as long as you don't have sex, then it's okay. Uh, you know, I, I heard someone say, the, you know, side B, and of course, there's there's lots of people that that it's a really, really broad category. And some might say, oh, no, you know, I, I believe the other things are sinful. But but side B, it is a pretty broad, uh, but I heard this best described that uh, side B are the people that are trying really, really hard not to have gay sex. Mm. So again, it's just limiting the gay sex part. Um that that's the only thing that's wrong. And they're finding unity in that, which I, I just, I, I don't know if that's a good place to find unity. Again, let's find our unity in Christ and his holiness in his perfection, not on, well, just this one part is sin, but a lot of people are actually giving in to other parts that are sin. And then we're okaying it by saying we need to be united. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's saying that actually at the end of the day, side A and side B, both believe that gay marriage is okay. Side A just calls it gay marriage. Side B just says, just don't have the sex, but they're essentially now renaming it and calling gay marriage without the sex spiritual friendship, uh, which is a covenanted lifelong, you know, even with a ceremony, same-sex marriage apart without having the sex. So this is really helpful because sometimes even in the apologetics community, when this topic comes up, when people do, like I've done lots of Q&As where this kind of, this will be thrown in a very hostile way. Like, well, what do you think about homosexuality? And then you're kind of on the spot. And sometimes, and I've said this, I'm sure, and I've heard other uh, people in the apologetics community say, well, when we talk about homosexuality, we're talking about same-sex behavior. Um, so I wonder if you might help me clarify my language on that. How would you advise me to begin talking about that rather than just, because I think I might be guilty of that at times, like separating, like just making it about the actual behavior, but we don't do that with other sins. If, if there's, right. if we're, if we have a, a lust in our heart for even, you know, within a, um, uh, heterosexual attraction or something. If there's lust in your heart, if Jesus talks about this on the Sermon on the Mount, well, that's sin. So it's not just, you know, having promiscuous sex in a heterosexual sense that's the sin. There's more to it. So help us in the apologetics yeah. community. How can we word this better? <laughs> well, you know, Elisa, I, I'm, you know, so there's been a journey as well. So I also would say, you know, it's just the behavior that's wrong, but the attraction isn't. I, I use that same, you know, 20 years ago when I was just coming out of prison and um, I hadn't been to Bible college or seminary. Uh, so I just said, you know, it's just the behavior that's wrong, but the attraction isn't. But as I studied it more, that's where I realized this whole conversation around whether same-sex attraction is sinful or not. Um, we're not defining our terms. I mean, isn't that like the number one rule, define your terms, and we're not defining attraction, and then we're debating over it. And so I think it's best uh, because everyone has all these different you know, definitions. Some say attraction just means temptation. Some say attraction means desire. Um, let's just use those words, the biblical terminology. Like whenever we can, let's just use biblical terminology and not the other terminology that could confuse. Of course, I still use the phrase same-sex attraction, kind of just generally, but when we're talking specifically about ethics, that's when I said, okay, then now let's talk about, let's parse it out and say attraction, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, temptation and desire. Whereas temptation is not actual sin, but it's definitely rooted in original sin. So a lot of times people really uh, this is another thing, critique of side B uh, gay Christians. They just limit sin to actual sin, the actual behavior. 
uh, where actually the doctrine of sin, actual sin is just a small aspect of the doctrine of sin. We're talking about original sin. We're talking about our sin nature. Uh, we're even talking about indwelling sin. All these very important concepts that go beyond just the act of sin. Uh, so the temptation is not sin, but it's definitely rooted in our sin nature and it's something that we need to flee and mortify. Desire, uh, you know, uh, it's not that desire turns into lust, but actually the same word in the Greek New Testament for desire is the same word that we sometimes translate as lust, epithumia. It just depends on, on the context. But getting back, like, what would be a healthy way? I, um, I want people to first understand, like, what do you think about homosexuality? I think what I would say is, first of all, um, every person needs to follow Jesus. I mean, that, you know, that, that's, that's the main issue. So um, we need to treat every person with dignity and respect. Same-sex relationships are sinful, but it's not the worst sin. And uh, so we need to point people to Christ, that, that we need to say that it's, we need to make sure that uh, even not only our behaviors um, are, are to be sanctified, which is progressive, but also our thoughts and our desires need to be sanctified and helping people to kind of parse that out that, and even if you give in, right? I mean, Christians, we still sin, just hopefully we're sinning less and less. We're not sinless. We're just hopefully sinning less and less, right? You know, the kind of little catchphrase. Uh, and I think that's helpful because what separates us before I came to Christ, I just was in bondage to my sin. Mm. Now, I'm no longer in bondage to my sin. That doesn't mean that I'm not tempted. I still am, but I'm no longer in bondage to my sin. So I think it's pointing people to, uh, you know, people ask, what do you think about homosexuality? I would say, well, you know, this is the behavior and the desire is sin. Uh, temptation is not sin. It's not a sinful act, but it is rooted in our sin nature. But we need to encourage people that this is not the worst sin. It's uh, there is hope for any sinner of any person dealing with their indwelling sin, but ultimately the goal for every human being is that you need to follow Jesus. And what does that mean? Deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and follow him. That's good. That's good. Because I think among young people, the question, because they've so adopted this idea of your sexuality being a descriptor of the core essence of who you are. Uh, the, you know, I, I have young people even ask me, well, why does God hate gay people? Or why does God send gay people to hell? Or, you know, and, and I, I, I answered a, a kid once very similar to what you said in a broader way, but I just said, you know, God gives every single person the same opportunity to repent of their sin and trust in him, you mm -hmm. know, and, and kind of focusing on that, that it's not like God's mm -hmm. just choosing this one group that really there's nothing they can do about it. They just have no shot. Mm -hmm. I think that's what they mm -hmm. buy. I think it's what they buy into the young people and, and because of their culture telling them that this is like who you are at the deepest that's core right. of your being. So, man, this yeah. has been, which is, and, which is also, you know, that's why when, when we say as Christians, this is sin, they don't hear us saying, oh, you're saying, you know, my behavior is sin. They hear us saying, like, you're a whole person. You are, sin. yeah. This yeah. is, you know, this is who you yeah. are. And, and you know, I'm going to borrow again from Rosaria Butterfield, but she said, you know, as Christians, we're able to hate our sin without hating ourselves. And yet, if we don't help, I really think if there's one thing that Christians could get is how we have and the world completely has we are conflating sexuality with who we are 
you know, even I'm not just picking on the word gay, straight, um, also is not an appropriate term for a Christian. I, my, my mom never introduces herself and says, I'm a straight Christian. Yeah. She is a Christian. Uh, she's a you know, sinner saved by grace. Um, we all have sinful temptations, and, and that's really important. And, and if I could just also add many, many times, you know, as I speak on this, often, and, and this sometimes come also with a side B, uh, celibate Christianity, uh, they have it so hard, you know, they, they, they can't ever get married, they just have to be celibate. Um, and people look at me and be like, oh, you must have it so hard. I don't actually. It's not easy. But when I read scripture, it's pretty clear. Three times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus lays it out what it means to be a follower of Christ. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's not at all meant to be easy. It's going to be hard, but it's worth it. And so people like myself, I'm just simply doing what the call of every Christian is to do, which is to, to say no to my sin nature every day. It's going to be difficult, but God gives us the grace. He gives us the Holy Spirit abiding in us to do so and to say no to our, to our flesh. Because following Jesus should cost us everything. If it hasn't, maybe we're following the wrong Jesus. Well, I want to thank my guest, Christopher Yuan. Rich discussion today. If you want to uh, view our little five to 10 minute after party hangout time, you can go to patreon.com slash Alisa Childers. Uh, if you are watching on YouTube, please subscribe and click, click that bell icon so that you're notified, especially next week. We're going to have Rosaria Butterfield. We talked about her a couple times in this episode. She's going to bring her insights to this discussion next week. And if you're listening on audio platforms like iTunes or Google, or Spotify helps if you go and leave a five-star review and if you see this post shared on social media if you share it out really helps us get the word out to more people so thanks so much for watching and we'll see you next time <laughs>